She's the B's replaced knees, Franny Choi. And they're Miss Nezzy, Miss Nezzy, Miss Nezzy. <laughs> Danette Smith. <laughs> and you're listening to Versus, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Brought to you by the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. And now RuPaul. Hi, Dennis. Hey, Franny. <laughs> Hi, how's it going? <laughs> I'm really good, you know. Um, we're still here at AWP, mm-hmm. um, recording a couple episodes, and um, it is now day three. And I'm not dead yet, yes. so Yes, and great. as of this recording, Vanessa Vanjie Mateo, still uh-huh. contender on Drag Race. Inshallah, it will stay that way. Yes, yes. yes. I want to see Vanjie in the top four. Vanessa Vanjie Mateo, who's like such a weird, magical creature. Like, <laughs> she's just like straight out of some... Fucked up fairy tale. Yeah, of some like, kind. yeah, Little Red Riding Hood starring Danny DeVito. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, do you have a favorite fucked up fairy fucked tale? Fucked up fairy tale? Yeah. Um, like, what fucked you up as a kid? Uh, I know what fucked me up. Yeah. Well, what did what fucked you up? The Little Fucking Mermaid. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I talked about this on the show before, but like in four year old pre K, mm-hmm. they had to send me to the two year old room when we watched The Little Mermaid because <gasps> oh. I was too scared. And then we watched oh. it on Pajama Day in kindergarten, and I just buried my head in the pillow for an hour and a half because oh. I didn't know when Ursula was going to pop up. And I was, she oh, scared baby. the shit out of me. Yeah. And but, now you're friends with all kinds of power lesbians. Yeah, and now I, I'm friends with all kinds of power lesbians. I identify <laughs> Ursula as a personal icon now. Right, right. I was I was scared to see myself was the problem. Mm, um, you know who else fucked me up too? The Tooth Fairy. I did not like the idea that like huh. some strange bitch was entering my window to come huh. for my teeth. I don't know if I ever really believed in the Tooth Fairy. I was like, okay, I guess this is a tradition that happens. <laughs> but fairies, not real. Come on. <laughs> nah, yeah. nah, nah. There's all kinds of like Korean fairy tales and fables Ooh. that I grew up with and like one of the most like canonical ones is chunggeguri keguri means frog okay i don't know what chung means but i think it's like backwards maybe so it's like it was this backwards frog the groff well kind of right so um so he was a frog kid Uh who would always annoy his frog mom by doing exactly the opposite of what she said so she was like this is how we croak or whatever we say kegul kegul and he'd be like kulge kulge you know (laughs) and she'd be like you know put this like shirt like you know on the east side of the house and he'd put it on like the west or whatever he'd just always do things backwards Mm -hmm. just like fuck with her and so she got really sick Mm -hmm. and on her deathbed she said I need him to bury me on the hill and not by the riverbed because if he buries me by the riverbed, then my grave will wash away into the river. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, bury me on the riverbed so that he would bury her on the hill. Uh He was like grief struck and then was like, this one last time, I'll do it the way that she said. And he buried her in the riverbed and then washed her grave, Damn. wash away. It's like a really intense story, right? And yeah. it was just, just like a, it was listen like a, your listen mother. to your fucking mom, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you just don't ask questions, you yeah. know? But it, yeah, it definitely scarred me as a child. Good, yeah. good, good. Major Stern, you know? <laughs> you listen to shit. That's well, good. I don't know. I like, I like scaring children into obedience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Seems fun. Yeah. But I don't know if it was fun on the receiving end. No. <laughs> you know? No. But like with me, you know, thanks to Ursula, I learned the power of keeping my own voice. Aw, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. My voice is for sale. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of fairy tales, mm-hmm. we are really excited to talk to one of our 
favorite poets mm-hmm. ever, yeah. one of our favorite living poets. Our knight in shining lyric. Truly. Mm-hmm. Um, Ilya Kaminsky, mm-hmm. whose work we both encountered for the first time at our very first AWP. We were nothing but babes. We were ne- merely babes. And we wept and um, learned about what was possible in mm-hmm. poetry. And we've had the incredible luck of being able to cross paths with Ilya several times since then, mm-hmm. um, both as a sort of friend in poetry, an mm-hmm. ally in poetry, mentor, mentor editor. Mm-hmm. Um, Brunch buddy. Brunch buddy, <laughs> yes. Um, and so, yeah, we're really excited about his new book, Deaf Republic. Ooh. Go ahead and read it if mm-hmm. you have not. Um, yeah, so we're excited to talk to him about fables and fairy tales and what the lyric does to animate all of those, et cetera, et cetera. Ilya Kaminsky was born in the former Soviet Union and is now an American citizen. He is the author of a poetry collection, Dancing in Odessa, and the co-editor of Echo Anthology of International Poetry. He has received the Whiting Award, a Landon Literary Fellowship, and a Guggenheim, and most recently at NEA. His work has been translated into over 20 languages, and we are so excited to talk to him today. Also, just as a reminder, um, Ilya is hard of hearing, and I say that just to say that if anybody out there listening or knows anyone that is hard of hearing or is looking for a different type of access to the podcast, all of our podcasts and all the Poetry Foundation's podcasts are available by transcript through request. So please, please, please take advantage of that. And a list of anything mentioned or referenced in the episode is available for every episode of Verses on the Poetry Foundation website. And without further ado, let's let Ilya get us started with the poem. We live it happily during the war. And when they bump into other people's houses, we protested, but not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed. Around my bed, America was fallen. Invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside and watched the sun. In a sixth month of a disastrous train. In a house of money, in a street of money, in a city of money, in a country of money, our great country of money, we, Pardivas, will happily during the war. (sighs) (laughs) That was the first poem that I ever heard you read at our first AWP. Oh, 2013. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Years ago. You and thought old? No way. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being moved to tears. Thank you, Ilya. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Ilya, what's moving you? <laughs> well, on a personal level, mm-hmm. people who I'm next to, my wife moves me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents passed away, both of them, so that is moving me in many mm-hmm. ways. And that brings me to a more literary level. Mm-hmm. How do I express what is moving me, what um, forms, what poetic devices? And um, I found that now I'm writing more prose right now this month mm-hmm. than poetry. It's about a year since my mother passed away. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I already wrote family poems in my mm-hmm. first book. So poetry doesn't seem to be quite the form. Mm-hmm. But I still have to say what I have to say. Mm-hmm. And that's what moves me to to say it. And so I'm writing essays, personal essays right mm-hmm. now, on the level of poetry line by line. Uh, I'm usually looking for what poetic devices mm. can best express emotion 
It might be syntax, it might be metaphor, it might be rhyme, but whatever device it is, it got to move me. Otherwise, it's a mere decoration. Hmm. Does the prose offer a different kind of remembering than the poetry does? Or what particular kind of emotion that the prose gives you access to um, that poetry couldn't? Well, I'm afraid that I'm forever in a poetry camp. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, going back and forth right now more than I ever did before to Ukraine, hmm. and country changing so much so quickly, especially in the last five years since the war began there, and every time going there and not knowing if it might be the last time to hmm. go there, it requires a kind of immediacy mm-hmm. and that Prose seemed to lend itself to. I find prose much easier to write, much. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, poetry, I really have to live this. Hmm. And poetry, for me personally, it's not like that for many of my friends, so I don't want to claim any claims. <laughs> but in my life, poem has to do with some radical change that I'm going with. Hmm. It might be a book long poem, it might be a lyric poem, but it got to mark something. Hmm. For me, that's what poetry is for. Prose is more of a daily occurrence. Hmm. I still love writing lyric prose, mm-hmm. but it is just a different kind of speed. Hmm. Wait, can you say more about why that distinction exists in your mind between like the dailiness of prose versus why poetry seems to be this marker of this radical change? In Russian, when I was learning to write poetry in Russian, there was um, a poet who had a phrase, it's a critical phrase, from the beginning of Russian poetry, you would flow with your heart upon the line. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of sentimental, but it's, it describes something to flow with your emotion across mm-hmm. the line. And something real, like you read great poets, um, Christopher Smart, uh, Bishop Hayden, mm-hmm. whoever it is, Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, they teach you how to live. Mm. They teach you a certain kind of breath, mm. a certain kind of condition mm. that you enter in that form. Mm. And that's a wild thing to enter another condition. Mm. Like some of the poets I love are probably quite extreme. If you think about it, Salan, Vallejo, mm. Middle Passage by Hayden, it makes mm-hmm. me cry. Yeah. It's such an emotional thing. When I teach it, students cry. Mm. You know, you need to prepare for that, to live in that. And I realize it's a personal take mm-hmm. for many other folks writing is a daily occurrence, a spiritual practice. And I fully respect that. I, I wish I had that. Mm. For me, it is more a Martin Mm. of where I am as a human. Mm. Every poem got to mark that. Mm. That makes me want to ask you how often you write poetry. Oh, I write, I have boxes of poems <laughs> yeah. in my, my house. Yeah. I write daily, yeah. but uh, that doesn't mean, you say it, how often do I write poetry? Uh-huh. Often. Uh-huh. How often do I write poems? <laughs> Whenever they're done. Uh-huh, hmm. right, yeah. That's a beautiful distinction. Yeah. Can we dive into the book? Yeah. Uh, I would love to dive into Deaf Republic, if we can. It is, first of all, an astonishing collection. But I'm wondering, do you consider this a novel in verse? I consider it the fable of fairy tale in verse. Hmm. Where I come from, Eastern Europe, Jews are extreme minority. Mm-hmm. There is really no great Jewish novel in Eastern Europe. Maybe until, I don't know, Kafka, of course, but that's more Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of fabulism. Hmm. There's a lot of fairy tale. And fairy tale for me is interesting 
often in that genre, mm-hmm. the listener is implicated. Mm-hmm. The listener is very much a part of the narrative. Mm-hmm. There is a kind of enchantment mm-hmm. that makes you an actor. And for the narrative in that particular book, it was very important for me personally to have the listener be implicated. Hmm. Who is your imagined listener for this collection? Well, that is um, partly why it took so long to finish the book. Hmm. I'm going to start a little bit afar, but I'll answer your question mm-hmm. just to give you context. Yeah. My first book took only six years, so it was normal, you know. Mm-hmm. Partly because I had great comfort of uh, being in conversation with Russian tradition. Mm-hmm. I came to U.S. in '93. I published the book in 2004. So I learned to write English and wrote the book in that nine years, and it was great. But I had this proximity only nine years away. Mm-hmm. I wrote in Russian before as a kid. So I had this uh, refugee, so to speak. But when I was done with it, I was like, well, it is my 10th year of living in the United States. What do I have to say on the subject? Then I had to really deal with the fact of being a refugee in a way I never really had to deal before. Mm-hmm. And I had to find a way to speak to both sides of myself. Mm-hmm. And it took me forever to figure out how to do that, mm-hmm. how to speak to both listeners inside me. And I realized it only in recent years that I was just trying to express what does it mean to write as a refugee. Mm-hmm. You, I spoke about a line break. In the United way, there is a line break in your life when you move from one place to another, mm-hmm. from one listener, so to speak, to another. Mm-hmm. My childhood will forever be there, so a part of me will always be listening to that. But I'm also here. Mm-hmm. And the book really needs to speak to that. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? That does. Yeah, that does. Absolutely. The blurb on the back of the book describes the setting of this book as being any town or like it's unclear where the setting is. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of place that holds in the imagination? Sure. Um, obviously, it's a fable, a fairy tale, but mm-hmm. it does have real background. Mm-hmm. I have lived in San Diego, which is a place where it is a daily event to see people dragged away mm-hmm. in the ice cars. I come from Ukraine, and you already know about the politics mm-hmm. that are happening there. Yeah. So there are real situations, real images. Now, I'm not going to claim here right now that I'm the suffering party. I'm not. I'm the exactly the other side of the book. is about the silent majority, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the book is trying to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's a story about real places, but it's, it's, it's still a fairy tale. It's mm-hmm. a fable. Mm-hmm. In a fable, right, in verse, um, I'm wondering which impulses you found yourself following or when they felt useful, whether the impulse towards language, because the way I think about a poetry collection or building poems, it is so much about letting the words, you know, show you, point you, guide you to where they want to head. But there is such a strong sense of narrative that I'm wondering um, when did sort of the need to tell the story, to complete the fable, take over, as opposed to the need to revel in the delight of like the strangeness and beauty of the language that you were creating? You imagine a very, very big wall, hmm. and you put your forehead against it, and you start beating against that wall. <laughs> and that wall is called a narrative, and your forehead is called a lyric. And you're hoping that uh, the wall is going to break and not your forehead. Hmm. Um, <laughs> My honest response is I write exactly in the way you just described it, Mm. which is I write on lyric fragments Mm -hmm. and I try to put them together 
in my experience, I ask a lot of people that question. Mm -hmm. How do you write? Mm -hmm. And people say many, many things, but it really comes down to two. And analogies are really painting or sculpture. Mm -hmm. It's just to say I write a lot and then cut, which is like sculpture, I get a block of stone, mm -hmm. and then I cut. Mm -hmm. Or it is like painting. I have this landscape and I add colors to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. But in this case, I also had to make a story mm -hmm. because I had to make sense of where I was and who I was. Mm -hmm. And we imagine our life as a story going forward, but when we look back, it's so full of fragments, right? Mm -hmm. But having said that, what I did is I wrote a lot of poems and then tried to fit them. Mm -hmm. And then every time the story changed, I had to write new poems. <laughs> every time I wrote new poems, the story had to change. <laughs> but, you know, this is a wonderful thing. It gives you a private world. Mm -hmm. I wish it was a happier world. I'm happy not to live in that world anymore. Mm -hmm. But it is still a private world where you can go to and live there. Yeah. Yeah. There is a very old formula that I really find very useful. From Horace Nabokov uses it, many many people use it, that you first seduce your reader mm -hmm. with beautiful language, with beautiful, you know, whatever devices you have. Mm -hmm. uh, then you break their heart. Mm -hmm. And only afterwards you teach them a lesson. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that may or may not be considered a narrative, but I try to use that. I think that's true. I think that's, yeah, that's very true to, I think, this formula for, like, slam poetry as well, <laughs> which is, like, sort of seduce them with language or even humor. Mm -hmm. um, and then humor you break them. Sure. Yeah, yeah, humor, break them, teach them a lesson. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. I love how slightly sadistic it is. <laughs> but I think, well, it is not. It is just a way of um, to honor it with beautiful language. Mm -hmm. Then to truly share whatever heartbreak you had. And mm. then, if you're kind, you share what you're learning from that heartbreak. Yeah, that's a very generous take. It is. <laughs> Whereas mine's like, yeah, fuck the reader. <laughs> okay. That's a blab right there. But I think I had asked that question also because I think selfishly, a small seed of it, I feel like sometimes I've been on the road to starting to write. I don't think mine would be fairy tales, but they're often like future visions, like kind of not, I don't want to say novels, but they're stories, right? I think the visions of the Nas Smith is a fantastic chapter in the Bible. It's true. But I, but I feel like I always, language always takes over and then I lose myself. Mm. Maybe I need to revisit some of those things, but I feel like sometimes I'm like, I know I'm telling a story and then I get halfway down the story and I'm mm -hmm. like, oh no, I'm in a poem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but the, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's never bad. I mean, I, I like those pieces, but there is, I think, a couple of things that I think I need to figure out how to limit the poetry so that the story can come out. And maybe it's a drafting thing. Maybe it's to draft the story and then draft the poetry on top. But poetry distracts me too much, personally, mm -hmm. that I forget that I was ever trying to communicate something to someone, and now I'm just trying to give them a feeling. <laughs> but, you know, poetry is a time that think a story, by definition of the genre, sets up a certain parameter. Mm -hmm. So, in some ways, it's a wonderful thing to just stay with the timeless. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 We got to overlap some at the Vermont Studio Center last summer, yeah, two summers yeah, ago, yeah. something like that. Sometime, um, sometime in the 21st century. Yes, sometime in the 21st <laughs> century, previous to now. Um, and I remember you giving me some advice about navigating 
sort of strangeness in the poems, like how to tether certain parts of the poems in order to allow for strangeness to happen in other parts. And I think this is something that was on my mind so much as I was reading the collection of how you navigate the um, stranger moments in language while keeping it so readable, I guess, uh, legible throughout and not allowing that strangeness to keep the, a reader away. Can you talk about how you navigate strangeness in your book? You know, it's actually harder for me to talk about that, about my own work. If mm. you talked about other poets, sure. it would be easier. Please. But let me explain why it's harder for me to talk about my own work. When we talk about, I don't know, Paul Salano or Emily Dickinson or many other poets, we can see um, how they create their own language. In my experience, it's exactly the opposite mm. because I'm not a native speaker. Mm-hmm. I'm a vault in strangeness. Mm. And my actual job is to make it readable mm. because if you want strangeness, every sentence is going to be strange. For me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. my job is to make it also enchanting. Mm. Mm. But maybe if I just to make sense, to actually honestly answer her question, uh-huh. <laughs> if you talk, say, about a great strange poet of strangeness, Emily Dickinson, mm-hmm. uh, you realize that she's making up English language according to Emily Dickinson. <laughs> yeah. And she's teaching you how to speak English language according to Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. And then you think, okay, and what devices is she using? Mm-hmm. And then you realize, wow, she only have, um, I don't know, no more than five devices that she's using. Mm-hmm. And then you start thinking about the tradition, oh, what about Whitman? And she probably have three and a half. <laughs> you know, devices that he's using. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, this great poet, that great poet. And then you think, oh, everything that they tell me in school that I need to know everything is actually just propaganda. Mm-hmm. Great poets know very, very few things, really, really deeply. Mm-hmm. But they know how to do thousand things mm-hmm. with very few things. Mm-hmm. Like the way Whitman uses anaphora, everybody knows. Mm-hmm. But closely side of a page where an is and look at the rest of the syntax mm. and you realize, wow, the guy really learned a lot from the opera. Mm. In case of Dickinson, everybody's going to talk, start talking about the dashes. Of course, the dashes. Of course, also the way she denies rhyme when you most expect it. Mm-hmm. And usually it happens when she has an idea to bring to you. She denies you the music, so in that silence you get her idea. Mm. But I want to talk about metaphors and similes and Dickinson. Mm. If you think about every single most memorable line that you have from the poet, I don't know, the walk has to the loaded gun. Without that particular device, there would be no Emily Dickinson Mm. whatsoever. Mm. So the strangeness for her exists in those devices. Mm. In some way, you can argue that Emily Dickinson was the first American surrealist. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Strangeness really has to do with what language we find for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is a lot easier to talk about other poets mm-hmm. when we talk about that subject. Sure, yeah. In that case, so, you know, you talked about how for you the project is to move from the strangeness into something that can translate for a reader. What does that process look like? Oh, I just follow the... Joy of language, mm-hmm. always. I write a lot, and then I look for what is actually working. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of boxes of language that I hope is working. Mm-hmm. But that is just a building material. I could publish it and have many books with it, but what's the point? I'm waiting until I have emotions mm-hmm. or any kind of states of mind, say, mm-hmm. for which that language is most fresh. Mm-hmm. 
and that kind of I hope answers your question when you combine emotion and thought, which is clarity, mm. with a language that is fresh and hopefully strange. You have that little marriage. And hopefully they make a baby, which is a pop. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, we're talking about strangeness, and I'm, I want to jump back to something Franny was asking earlier. I think it was about the city that is involved in the book. And I want to ask about the relationship between location and strangeness in your work. Location. Location, yeah, and place. Because when I think about your collections, right, I think Deaf Republic, Dancing in Odessa, both collections are so centralized in what land and what place and what city community means to people. Mm. Does being tethered to a location give you permission for to be stranger in language? Or is there anything about the lands in which you're writing that you find you're, or that you're existing in that you're able to like cull the strangeness of those places mm. into your poems? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, you really kind of told them about Different kind of forms, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you create a form in which you make what, whatever it is you need mm-hmm. to make. In order to make a soup, yeah. you need a pen. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. But it can also be a person. You can mm-hmm. also do a character. Mm-hmm. It could also be a prayer. Mm-hmm. You establish that you talk to God, and then you can say whatever you, that you want to say or don't want to say. Mm-hmm. You need to have some kind of bridge. Mm-hmm with the reader, that the reader knows I'm vaulting from a point A to point B on that bridge. Mm-hmm. But what your bridge is made out of, what kind of weather, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of human is vaulting, what kind of cat is vaulting on that bridge is totally up to you. Mm-hmm. Speaking of real locations, Odessa is a very strange place for former USSR mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, but I'll talk about two. Mm-hmm. Number one, um, the Russian language spoken in Odessa is completely not like the Russian language spoken in most other parts of Russia. Oh. It's because it is really, truly the only international place in the country. It was a warm seaport. Mm. So there were a lot of youth, Ukrainians, Bulgarians, Moldovans, uh, Greeks, and many other humans living in that city that did not live, say, in Moscow. Mm. Uh, Jews were not allowed to live in big cities. Mm-hmm. So the language was extremely different. People brought their own speech mm. and made the Russian in their image, mm-hmm. which is, for me, was extremely liberating. I remember as a kid finding a book by Isaac Babel, a trust story writer, opening the kitchen table, and I was a terrible student in the fifth grade. You know, who, who cares about school, right? <laughs> the country is falling apart. Mm-hmm. Forget about the country falling apart. You just smoked your first cigarette, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finding Isaac Babel's book on a table and thinking, oh, this is how mom and dad speak when they make dinner. Mm. It is not how my teachers speak in school. This is not how people speak on TV. And suddenly the literature is really alive and near and immediate. Mm. And making how your mom and dad speak stay in time. Mm-hmm. That is, I suppose, a way of relationship between language and mm-hmm. location. Mm-hmm. But the second then would be San Diego, where I live it for 12 years, just move it away from it. It's an entirely moving border. It changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first came there, I had students who lived in Tijuana and commuted. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually had a bed once with students. The part of a bed was for me to walk out on the bridge by foot to Mexico, which took about 20 minutes. There is a train going right there, like a regular public transport. You get out, you walk, it's a lovely bridge, you're, you're in Mexico, great. You buy ice cream, you go back. 
mm-hmm. while going back is about four hours. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a huge line of people. Mm-hmm. But what is amazing is it's not an angry line. Mm-hmm. It's a line that has a life of its own. Mm-hmm. People are sharing food, they're sharing stories, they're babysitting other people's children for four hours. <laughs> You know what I mean? There's a real, I even wanted to write a play about that lion once. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't happen, but it's still in my head. Mm-hmm. What is the language of that? It's definitely a location. Mm-hmm. And then talking to students who have some of their families not legal in this country, mm-hmm. and they're like, we live here for generations. The mm-hmm. border moves back and forth, but we are still here. The border is moving through us. Mm-hmm. So what is the language for that? Mm-hmm. Those are real experiences. I'm not claiming to have them in a book, mm-hmm. but those were the experiences of my life mm. while the book was written. I want to ask about the role of hope and the role of resistance in this book as a fable of people who are experiencing the invasion of their town and 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 the like a, a military presence. Mm-hmm. Do you consider this a hopeful? It's a difficult question. Um, I'll try to give you both personal answer and then more direct answer. Uh, Personal answer is me being hard of hearing. One point in college reading the book by a woman named Rosa Marie Garland Thompson, who is a great disability scholar, um, who in her book and preface says, Disability, the way we talk about it, should in this country, in the United States, should move from the realm of the hospital to the realm of political minority. Mm-hmm. And that really made me think differently about many things. I think it's a great statement, and she's a great scholar. And disability doesn't just apply to me as a heart of human person. It applies to every damn human in this country who has or doesn't have health insurance. Hmm. If it moves from the realm of hospital to the realm of political minority, then it is a question for each one of us right now. Okay, so that is a very personal kind of thing. Um, More on a literary level, I want you to turn the tables and to make toughness into... Positive change. Mm. But I'm also a writer, and I have to acknowledge the fact that human beings are deeply flawed. And so the end of the book is not that exactly happy. Mm. And if I made it happy, I would be writing propaganda. Right. Uh, is there a hope? Maybe. I hope so. But I don't want to be um, standing here and saying, yeah, there is hope, because look around us. Mm. We live in the late empire. Mm. And uh, it's not a happy place. Mm. And it's getting progressively more dangerous. And the law is, has always been fake in this country. Mm. Mm. But now it is openly fake. What are your obsessions, Seth? Now let's talk about your, your obsessions. You want to talk about it? Okay, cool. This is your podcast now. Uh, <laughs> what are our obsessions right now? Yeah, like you're practicing both. You're living in exactly the same time I'm living with, so I would love to know what are your obsessions in both. Hmm. Um, that's a triggering question right now for me. I just finished my next book, and that was so obsessed. Yay! Yay! Turned in the final draft the other day. Okay. Um, that was so obsessed with friendship and intimacy and really exploring um, not only the texture of intimacy between people, but what friendship does to the self Mm -hmm. um, as a saving grace. And I think 
you know, a lot of that collection, or at least that was the later part of the collection. It also very much deals with how class and race affect intimacy, how illness affects the body. A good friend of mine committed suicide. And so a big seed of the book was trying to write my way through grieving him. And also like being a person who's dealt with suicidal thoughts, just what that meant to have it as close and near as a friend. But right now I feel obsessionless in poems a little bit. And I'm a little worried about that because mm-hmm. I've never not had a thing to work on. I've always kind of had the next thing right there as I was finishing up the thing before. And now, you know, I've been writing poems a little bit. Maybe I'm obsessed with like prose poems and what those offer mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, what did somebody say? The tyranny of the line. I forget who I need to credit that to somebody. Putting the line aside has been offering me something. But I feel like my, my looking has really fallen flat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with each book or each poem, maybe we sort of are teaching ourselves to see again or, you know, how we take in the world, not, not necessarily sight dependent, but I don't know how to see right now. Mm. I'm trying to find that and I'm trying, I'm hoping to take a little bit of time away from writing. You actually. I don't know how to see? Yeah. Let me rephrase that. What are you enjoying the most? <laughs> It's not poetry right now. You know, I love it, you know, but like, I feel like I've heard a lot of poems and I've written a lot of poems. I like stories and nature and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and having like low stakes conversations with my mom and my grandma and sort of returning to mundaneness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I like that right now. And I'm trying to give myself space to not be a poet for a little bit yeah. um, and to not have to poesize the world. I've had a friend once who said the hardest poem to write ever mm-hmm. is to write about just sitting on a chair mm-hmm. and that's it. Yeah. And make the good, good poem. <laughs> so you really are told about that challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's also a challenge. Maybe I think I'm fighting a little bit less poetry, more the career of the poet is I feel like what I'm pushing up against right now mm. is this sort of need to answer what are you working on? What are you thinking about? And... I'm at a time where like, I think I'm thinking about a lot of internal work, um, inter- a lot of other things that, mm. you know, I don't know if the largest job in my life right now is to be a poet. Hmm. And I'm glad to, you know, I, I still go out and do the readings. I teach and that's a particular kind of joy, right? So I guess maybe some of it is less so about the obsessions of my own work and trying to figure out how to help my students unlock their obsessions and really start to take more risk inside of the work. Mm. But for me right now, you know, I feel like For the last couple of years, I feel like poet was like sort of like my like number one or number two jobs of what I was doing in the world. Maybe it's not even in the top 10 right now. I'm yeah. not really supposed to be a poet at this moment. Does that freak you out? It scares the living shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't be scared. I mean, you, you're supposed to go hide. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of mm-hmm. it. Places like where we are right now, AWP make a thing that we are supposed to have a lot more community and mm-hmm. a lot more corporate ways. Mm-hmm. But your community are always going to be like five, ten people maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, 99% is being somewhere far away, hiding and reading a book, right? yeah. or talking to a mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being honest. No what, what about you? <laughs> Obsessions and joys. Obsessions and joys. You know, I also feel slightly in orbit right now, I think. You know, my book, it's like about to be in the world. It's newly in the world, but it's been finished for a while, you know? We know the gap between finishing the book and and then other people being allowed to start encountering Mm -hmm. it. And so that like weird time displacement. And at the same time, I feel that I'm, I'm not done thinking about 
about the book or I'm not done thinking about the poems. I'm not done thinking about the themes of the of the book. So technology and about being a soft, organic feeling thing and what that has to do with the various technologies of America and of our bodies, et cetera. And so I've been sort of like wrestling with that, what to do with that feeling unfinished. And I think the solution that I've come to is by writing the poems, even if I don't think that they'll be in a book or, you know, um, since apparently this book is finished, and also trying to wrestle with those themes in other mediums. So also I've been like writing more prose, more essays specifically, and then a few, like a little bit of fiction here and there, although fiction is so hard and I can't, I really struggle with fiction. And then also some visual things. It's also been like adapting the poems that are in the book into different mediums to share them with the world. I think that's been a a good way to allow me to keep working on it, even if it's been printed, you know? Mm -hmm. And maybe that has to do with the fact that, like, a lot of my work hours right now are having to do with, like, telling people that the book exists and, like, talking about where I'm going to be reading it and going out there and reading it, you know, so I have, I'm, I'm in that mindset. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to use that mindset in a kind of like creative artistic way. I don't know what shape it'll, it'll be, but I think the next project is going to be about, I haven't actually written a lot in these last two books about Korea and about um, the division of Korea and what that does for my identity. And so that's been what all of my new poems basically have been mm-hmm. about. It's been about Korea and my grandma. <laughs> Korea, my grandma. Yeah. So. Wonderful. It's the best kind of Korea, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Her Korea is the one that I'm interested in. Oh, that's Hopefully. a title. Her Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good title. <laughs> that is a good title. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah. It has great sonics. Her Korea. Yeah. <laughs> I love the rhythm of titles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blood mm-hmm. Percussion is still one of my favorite ones. Even it's Nate Marshall's chapbook. It was a chapbook, but Blood Percussion rhythmically is like one of the best <laughs> titles I've ever heard. Agreed. Yeah. Um, we wanted to ask you about your role in the world of poetry. Not I don't just have as a, one. <laughs> that's not true. Bitch, please. <laughs> <laughs> not just as a writer of poems, but also as a an editor and a, a teacher of poems and a champion of poetry, which I think that you really are, a cheerleader for poetry. You um, know, I had a conversation yesterday <laughs> with mm-hmm. a number of wonderful poets who are a little bit of my age or um, a little older, mm-hmm. and we were actually talking about you guys and your generation. Oh. <laughs> yes. You know, admiring way, how you guys really have a community. Mm-hmm. I never really did the MFA. Mm-hmm. I went to law school, I worked in public interest, and I had a great time doing that. However, I always, in the back of my heart, felt a little lonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I don't have a community that I can call in the middle of the night and recite poems. I have some good friends, mm-hmm. but I'm afraid it really kind of gives you this structure mm-hmm. of living with others and talking about poetry for what, two or three years mm-hmm. that you guys really do have. Mm-hmm. Partly because I did not have that, I was trying to talk to other poets in terms of translating them, mm-hmm. often that poets mm-hmm. in my case, or doing anthologies, just trying to have an ongoing education mm-hmm. of a poet. Mm-hmm. So whatever I do is told to others, but also listening. Mm-hmm. And that's how I educate myself. I'm a self-educated person. Mm-hmm. And um, I like it. I feel like it's working for me. And I hope it is 
also giving something to others. I like learning about new poets and sharing about poets a lot. Mm-hmm. It feels like a healthy thing to do. Mm-hmm. It does feel like a healthy thing. Thank you for saying that about the community. Yeah, thing. first of all, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think it's something we created. I think it's a symptom of um, the spaces that raised us. Um, a lot of us coming. I think it's in, also some things that we created as well. You I, know, think, I think I think we harnessed it, and yeah. I think we made it intentional. Yeah, yeah. But true, I true. think a lot of us are coming from spoken word backgrounds that necessitate community to be a poet, and a lot of the institutions that a lot of us, even outside of the spoken word realm, have been filtered through, like Kuniman and Kaveh Kanem and Kantamundo mm-hmm. and all those places, mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. shown us that a critical function of poetry is community. Mm-hmm. At least for me, I feel like my understanding of poetry has never been allowed to venture too far into that idea of like the lonely hermit mm. writer. That was a part of it. Sure, you must go and ward over your poems in a way. Mm-hmm. But right now you are interested in being a lonely hermit. I am, I am. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I'm not interested in being a lonely hermit because because I'm I don't, I'm not I'm not writing right now. Yeah. That's the thing. So like I'm always kind of a little bit of a lonely yeah. hermit, but I feel like I just get to like sit in the grass and look at everybody yeah. else for a little bit. <laughs> you know, you go to be a lonely hermit so that way you can come back to the public square. Mm, right. um, and be useful in some way. That is why poets never become gods. The gods are those who you never see. Mm-hmm. Even in ancient Greece, poets mm-hmm. are demigods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are hungry to be with humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God. One thing that I think you do really well is championing us as like American poets to think greater than our borders in terms of who we are in actually conversation with um, and who we're in community with. Particularly with your work with Poetry International, National, et yeah. cetera. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. You were talking about the other day, right? That like mm-hmm. we think that a Polish poet Poet is representative of Polish poetry. And I'm certainly consider this a thing I'm trying to learn in about my like sort of international community. Who are we speaking to that we might not know of? Mm-hmm. Just start a little bit from the beginning of what you said. Mm-hmm. You know, being a refugee, I have divided intentions. Mm-hmm. On the one side, I'm extremely grateful for my family being saved and brought mm-hmm. here in 93. On the other side, I'm extremely aware that other families are bombed just as we speak. Mm-hmm. It's a double-sided sword. Mm-hmm. So as a part of my job as a writer, I feel like I have to share what else is happening out there. Mm-hmm. Forrest Gander has this beautiful image. She says that a translator is somebody who comes to literature, our American literature, mm-hmm. which for him is... Um, a metaphor of a mirror, a writer is looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And she says, translator needs to make out of that mirror a window mm-hmm. and open the window. And I think this is a great description. Mm-hmm. But it's not just for a translator. It should be really, honestly, for any writer yeah. and their audience, whatever that audience is. America is a country of many mirrors. It's mm-hmm. like Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. Our job is to open the... Um, Windows. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we are becoming more and more trampled. Yeah. Uh, which is one big giant mirror mm-hmm. with a golden chair in front of it and no human sitting in that chair. Mm-hmm. Having said that, to come back a little more to your question, like, who should we be reading? I'm not a person who's going to say, read, 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 read this and that. There's so many people to read. I did work a few years ago with a project that was called International Post and Conversation. Hmm. We did a number of anthologies from around the world. Uh, there were posts from um, China, say. Mm-hmm. And it was an education for me. Every single project I do is a project where I'm just... I want to take the class in this, you know, and mm-hmm. let's do it and see what we can learn. Mm-hmm. And so what I learned from that book was um, 
majority of us, when we think about Chinese food here in America, we think of the classical Chinese, mm -hmm. or if you know a little bit more, we think about Beidou and the Misty Poets of the Tiananmen Square, uh, but that's been a long time ago. Mm -hmm. The Chinese poets of the 90s are influenced by magical realism, some of them, mm -hmm. and we never really think about that. Mm -hmm. Coming from Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe falls apart. Waldrina Moore does a wonderful anthology. She's a brilliant poet in her own right. Waldrina Moore's fabulous. She did a wonderful anthology called Something Indecent, mm. where um, a number of poets uh, from Eastern Europe were asked, who influenced you? This kind of conversations. Uh, Kwame Davis is probably most hardworking person mm. in um, American and world poetry in some yeah. ways. What he's doing for African yeah, Our African Book Fund mm -hmm. is an amazing project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first anthologies that we did was bringing the seven chapbooks mm -hmm. that they put in the box mm -hmm. set yep. and uh, bringing the ch one chapbook per each young poet from the African continent. And that was the first time ever mm -hmm. in this country a young poet from an African continent had a book. Hmm. Okay, and Kwame Davis did that. There are many others. Right now, I'm excited about the poetry from Romania. Mm. And, I, you know, I'm watching this in there because that's where I'm from. And so many countries either go back conserving their roots mm. or become McDonald's, uh, mm -hmm. you know. And Romania seems to find this wild language mm. between the West and the East. Mm. And they're not giving up their native vocabulary and ways of thinking, but they are also bringing some Western influences as well. Mm. Uh, a poet you might already know, Venus Hovigata, she is a woman from Lebanon mm -hmm. who writes in French mm. and is being translated into English by Marilyn Hacker. Mm. Venus Hovigata says, I write in Arabic through French. Mm. Mm. And that is an interesting mix, like how that's, that's truly bringing the cultures mm. together in an organic way. I write in Arabic through French. Mm. Uh, so there's a wonderful person, many other parts as well. We can spend the whole year having a video show on the subject, <laughs> you know. But um, there are podcasts in Poetry Foundation, uh, International Poets and Conversation, mm -hmm. and that might be the easiest place for people to start. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you feel sometimes as if you're writing Russian through English in that mm. same kind of way? That was what Dancy Inodiasa was. Mm -hmm. And Deaf Republic was exactly trying not to do that. Mm. And Deaf Republic still, I'm sure, doing that. <laughs> but it's trying, at least in the first poem and in the last poem in the book, mm -hmm. I hope it is also American for better or for worse. Mm. Mm. What was the impulse to move away from trying to write Russian through English. Okay. One thing that I believe in from the very beginning of writing poetry where I start, they got to be truth. I can play whatever I want, mm -hmm. but I have to be honest about something on this planet. And poetry is the um, way for me to do it. Mm -hmm. If I was just writing in Russian or writing in within the Russian tradition, mm -hmm. I would be a showman because I don't live in Russia. Mm -hmm. And... I speak in English to you right now. I speak in English to my wife. I speak in English to my cats. Okay. Sure, I speak in Russian to my brother. I spoke in Russian to my mom when she was alive. But I live a divided life. That's who I am. Mm -hmm. And I have to be honest about that. And that is why uh, I was dealing with this dilemma 
you're inviting them definitely probably. Mm. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yes, definitely. Look, it would be very easy for me to just sit here and say, oh, it's a universal book. It speaks to many different... But that is bullshit. There's no such thing as universal. It's the majority's uh, perspective of what Mm -hmm. currently universal fashion is. It's bullshit. We deal with real life. Mm -hmm. And in my case, it just happened to be real life that I had to find two different sides of me. That's all. What part of the writing process feels like translating? Or like how are those processes linked? I mean, I think we under we sort of understand how in like doing the work of translation, how writing factors into that. Actually, right? I have no idea. Well, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, translation you know. is a mysterious thing. It's like um you know that you have a soul. Mm-hmm. But where in your body is it located? <laughs> <laughs> that is what translation is. Yeah. It is trying to do the impossible. <laughs> How do you translate Ella Fitzgerald into a violin? Hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or how do you translate Mozart into Billie Holiday? Yeah. Well, Billie Holiday has seven Mozarts in her already. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do, yeah. Um, so it is really not trying to translate, mm. but trying to compose something on the same frequency, mm. what translation is. Even in transit, you try to do what you can. Mm-hmm. You know, writing from one country to another is not necessarily translating. Mm. It is really just writing in both mm. and seeing how you can find the most fascinating music in the process. Mm. It might be one, it might be the other. I want you to have both. Mm. Because that was most honest for me. We're going to pivot. We're going to play our game that we play on every episode. We play a game. We play a game. And what was everything before? Pre-game. So on every episode of Verses, we like to play this versus that, where we will put two concepts or nouns or whatever in two separate corners, and you tell us who would win in a fight. Your fight, my sweet referee, um, will be in this corner. Um, we have windows, and in that corner, we have mirrors. Who wins in a fight? I think you already know the answer. <laughs> I don't, because I love mirrors, and so. Fuck Donald Trump, mirrors lose. Why do you say that? Not why do you say fuck Donald Trump, but why do you say that mirrors lose? Because a poet is somebody who is very, very obsessed with a mirror, by Mm. definition, Mm. lyric poet. And lyric poets become great poets when they go above and beyond that. Mm. We will always have to deal with mirrors. I mm-hmm. mean, that is the curse and the blessing of the lyric part. Mm-hmm. But we need to pass through that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember who said it, but the best way out is through. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's also a little bit of the mirror in the window, too, right? Right. You ever, you know, you looking out the window, unless if it's closed, right? And eventually you start to see right. yourself right. if your eyes right. refocus. Right. Mm-hmm. But there is danger to, to windows as well. Mm. And that danger is very American, actually. Danger. It's a danger of too much happen. Mm. It's like we, we as Americans, 
we have the imperialist background, mm -hmm. and we go take a little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from there, and mm. we make a soup, and we feel so inclusive. Ha -ha. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it, it got to be really earned to live with this. Mm. If it is live with this, then you become a part of the other experience. If you don't live with it, if you just take a little bit salt and pepper, then that's all you do. You took some salt and pepper, and mm. you know nothing mm. about them. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you, Ilya, so much for coming and talking to us. I've learned so much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I get as well from you. Um, we learn together every time we meet. It's true. <laughs> um, will you close us out by reading us one more poem? Let me close on a love poem, okay? Mm -hmm. Yes. Before the war, we made a child. I kissed a woman whose frack I'll settle the neighbors. She had a mole on her shoulder, which she displayed like a model for bravery. Her trembling lips. Man come to bed. Her hair water falling in the middle of the conversation. Man come to bed. I walked in my barber shop of this. Yes, I zivered her off to bed. On the chair of my hairy arms, but parted lips. Man bite my parted lips. Lying under the cool sheets, Sonia. The things we did. I learned so much from that interview. Oh my yeah. God, it was a blessing. I really learn a lot every time I talk to Ilya, even for like five minutes, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it was so great to get to soak it all up for a whole hour-ish or so. I yeah, know, I know. I'm really um, tickled by a lot of what he was saying, just about being um, a refugee and sort of like writing um, as a bridge between those two spaces yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Franny, look below you. Um, okay. Do it. Is there something, is there a prize under my chair? There's a, there's a bridge. Ooh. There's a bridge under your feet. Oh. Now, now look behind you and ahead of you. What uh. countries are you going to uh. and coming from? Wow. First of all, I love this presencing exercise. <laughs> Very grounding. Mm -hmm. Standing on a bridge uh -huh. between Starshine and Poppers. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like the obvious answer is like, Koreans and like everyone else mm -hmm. or whatever, right? But I don't like actually think those are like the two communities that I'm talking to. Hmm. Maybe it's actually like the country of young people who are new to poetry hmm. or like have felt shut out of poetry for hmm. all the usual reasons mm -hmm. and people who are really well-versed in poetry, hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. folks who have the privilege of an academic background in hmm. poetry. It's the folks who are outside the tower and inside the tower are, hmm. the, are the people that I'm, I'm hoping to bridge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, and I imagine that you kind of feel the same way, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. What are your What are your two countries that you're bridging between? Well, one, I do. I feel very at home on your bridge as well. But yeah. what I was thinking was, I'm thinking about it as like a temporal thing. I think hmm. behind me, um, or maybe beside me, is an exhausted past that refuses to stop reanimating itself as the present. Hmm. Um, and ahead of me is an abundant future that I'm always trying to reach for oh and figure out a stars. way to get to. Yeah, that's so beautiful, bitch. Oh, Thank you, bitch. Thank oh you, bitch. God. Sometimes I say a smart thing. Oh. Oh. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I think that's a, a lot of the tension in my work is like 
the past sucks. Why do we keep on making it happen over mm-hmm. and over again? And when can like the future that I already kind of live in with my family and friends, mm-hmm. when does that get to exist at its fullest? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like the idea of a bridge between them as being able to shuffle back and forth mm-hmm. between them, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully yeah. with the privilege of mobility mm-hmm. between them. Mm-hmm. Um, a privilege that, like all, should not be taken lightly. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Thank cool. you, Ilya, for sparking that little conversation. I, I learned a lot about myself and yeah. about you, I think. Yeah, truly, mm-hmm. truly. Cool. Well, who else are you uh, trying to thank on this here episode? Ilya brought him up in the mm. conversation. So I'm just going to thank uh, Jeff Schatz for being an amazing editor. He's been an editor of my work. Yeah. Um, and for, you know, uh, giving us a lot of collections. I think Deaf Republic is going to be a collection that very fast is going to mean a lot to a lot of people. So yeah. um, thank you for um, helping Ilya usher this into the world. Yeah, truly. Mm-hmm. In the same vein, I want to thank my editor, Ooh. Carrie Salerno. Ooh, yes. Yes. Silver hair icon, platinum blonde icon. Mm-hmm. Truly, like, one of the few women editors of mm-hmm. these, like, poetry presses that's, like, really, I think, doing an amazing job at cultivating women and queer and femme yeah. writers on that press, on Sh- Alice James. Surely. And, yeah. like, Alice James, like, it doesn't need to be said, but we must say it, is killing the game. Killing the game. You know, one of the yeah. most impressive poetry lists, I, I feel like, in all of the publishing. I agree, and mm-hmm. I'm really proud to be part of it. So thanks, Carrie, for being, like, so supportive and, like, really fabulous and mm-hmm. make me feel cute, etc. We also want to thank the Poetry Foundation. Thank you to Post Loudness. Thank you, Idalmi Noriega, for making the machine run. Thank you, Daniel Kisslinger, for making the literal machines run. Thank you, listeners, for continuing to listen to us. Yeah. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please make sure that you rate, comment, and subscribe. If you are listening to us elsewhere, keep it up. And please follow us on social media, on Twitter, at BS the Podcast. And with that, we are going to go get our AWP on. And so we wish you a merry conference we miss you a merry conference Conference. we wish you a merry conference or wherever you are um (laughs) have a good one y'all bye